Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel to Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Luke chapter 6. We have been looking at this section where Jesus has turned his attention. It's it's Beatitudes, but it's kingdom living. And, and last time, last week, I would say when we were together, together online, uh, we were talking about judge not. And Jesus is going to continue that same three of uh, same theme of not judging. But we want to look in verse 41 where Jesus goes on and he says this in verse 41. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you, you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. And the ruin of the house was great. Father, bless the hearing of your word this morning and help us uh, to, to be willing to, to not just hear it, but to do it, Lord, by the power of your spirit. Lead us in the study for it's in Jesus' name we pray these things and God's people prayed. Amen. Jesus says, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but, but you don't perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that's in your eye when you yourself don't see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will clearly see to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, I'm sure that we are all familiar with this verse, right? I mean, we've heard this over and over. But the question I'd ask this morning is, do you fully understand what it is that Jesus is saying here? Because I think that a lot of us don't. The Greek word that Jesus uses here for speck is the Greek word kaphos. And in its, in its simplest meaning, this Greek word means splinter or chaff or dust fragment or chip of wood. Some scholars suggest that the greater implication in this, and they say there's a greater implication of what Jesus is saying here, is because the, the actual interpretation can be referring to a splinter or chip from the same plank from the same plank. Now that's interesting. 
because that interpretation would definitely make sense in light of Jesus's statement here and what he's talking about judgment, because this is still a continuation of what we were looking at in the previous section, dealing with judging one another. And it'd be powerfully true and relevant because it would mean that the sinful speck that we so clearly see and want to deal with in our brother's eye is the same sinful plank that's in our own eye. Let me say that again. That speck that we feel compelled to deal with in our brother's eye. And and when I say brother, I know he has in mind here fellow believers, but the truth is I don't care whether it's fellow believers or people in the unsaved world. That speck that we see and feel compelled to deal with, that sinful speck is coming from potentially the same sinful plank that's in our own eye. And think about that true that is when we're judging others. I mean, just think about this. We tend to judge and find fault with the things that we're most familiar with personally. That's true. What I mean to say is that we spot and we're most sensitive to the sins in the lives of others that we're most familiar with in our own lives. And maybe we're not practicing the same sins outwardly. That's always possible. It may not be the exact same sin that we're practicing outwardly, but oftentimes we're struggling with the same sinful things in our own hearts. It goes back to what Jesus criticizes the Pharisees about, right? They claim they weren't doing this, they weren't doing that sin, and he he points to their hearts and he says, but you commit adultery in your heart. You commit murder in your heart. You commit these things in your heart. He makes the connection to the heart. And that's why it's so easy oftentimes for us to detect sin in the lives of others. And in making their sin the issue, what we end up doing, when we make it about their speck, what we end up doing is we deflect attention away from our own struggles with the same kinds of things, making ourselves feel better about ourselves spiritually in the process. David's response to the parable, if you remember after uh, David fell in sin with Bathsheba, I, I think most believe it was about a year had passed, but Nathan the prophet is sent by God to the king, sent to David to confront him about his sin. And, 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 and what we find in David's response, I think, reflects this very thing that I'm suggesting to you here this morning. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 7, I'll just read the account, but in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate with his own, or ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his own bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And, and, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Well, you know the rest of the account, right? David does repent, but but here's the point. What caused David to react so strongly to the sinful behavior of the man in the parable? It was his own heart condemning him 
for a similar sin of a similar nature. It was ready in his own heart, and he knew that, and he was feeling convicted by it, but he struck out at, at this man in the parable. But unlike a lot of people, and this is to David's credit, at least he owned up to it and he repented of it. Many Christians do not. Many Christians do not. What they do instead is to launch a spiritual campaign against others for the specs that they see setting themselves up as spiritual judge, jury, and executioner, all the while being driven by the plank of a similar nature in their own lives that they just don't want to honestly confront. It is the truth that we lash out more harshly at the sins of others when we're harboring similar sins in our own lives. Boy, if you don't believe that, I mean, you just need to watch the accounts of the TV preachers who've fallen in sin. You know, I remember, I don't even have to go through names, but I mean, I remember some back in the 80s when I was watching, we were part of a group of churches and one of their their most pronounced preachers, almost every time he was in the pulpit, he was preaching against sexual sin. And then he gets caught in motel rooms with prostitutes, right? You hear guys preaching against drugs continually and they make their bully pulpit and then you find out these preachers are doing it themselves. Oftentimes, the very bully pulpit kinds of things we make are the very sins that we're committing. So, you know, I'm careful not to bully pulpit anything so you can't catch me in my sins. No, I'm kidding. I am kidding. At least, you know, I hope I'm not deceiving myself. But I am saying that that's often the tendency of people. And yet there's a warning about this sort of thing, which even the Apostle Paul gives us, right? In Romans chapter 2 and verse 3. Romans chapter 2 and verse 3 says, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Did you hear what he just said? You, you, you who judge those that are doing these things. Now here Paul, of course, is talking to the self-righteous Jews. He's saying, you're judging them for these things. Do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God when you're doing the same thing? Yeah, maybe people don't see it, but you're doing the same thing. And so Jesus says here in this parable, or in this, in this, not parable, but in this discussion, he says to be sure to deal with the stuff in your own eye first. Be sure to do that. And as you do that, you might find that the person's sins that you're so concerned with and determined to call out and, and correct aren't quite as visible as you once thought they were. And also, as you do this, you oftentimes will find yourself in a better position to deal with their sins when it is appropriate for you to do so. Because instead of judging and condemning them, your attitude will be one of wanting to help them. And there is a difference. There is a difference. One is about condemnation, while the other one is about mercy and grace, you see. It's not that God wants us to ignore sins in the lives of people. He certainly doesn't want us to do that. But he wants us to deal with them in the right way and with the right heart and for the right reasons. He, he wants us to, to, he wants to use us as vessels of his deliverance and restoration and reconciliation in the lives of people, such as he did with Nathan and David. I mean, Nathan's a great picture of that. Nathan was confrontational with David, and yet Nathan's heart was to see the king restored. Nathan's heart was to see Dave, David recognize his sin so that he could continue to live as the king of Israel and to honor God because Nathan saw David as a man of God's heart. He knew that. But, but for that to happen, we need to deal with it in our own lives first. And when we confront our own sins honestly, we're better than able to relate to and to show mercy to others because we'll have experienced the mercy of God for the sins of our own lives. Mercy begets mercy. 
That's just the truth. Mercy begets greater mercy. God can use you powerfully in the lives of other people when your own heart has been dealt with first. I like something David said in his prayer of repentance that followed what happened with Nathan. In Psalm 51, verses 10 through 13, it says this, Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners shall be converted to you. You see what David did first? Create in me a clean heart, Lord. Create in me the clean heart. Renew that steadfast spirit within me first. Don't cast me away and don't take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then, then, then I can be useful in teaching transgressors your ways. Why? Because David's heart will be right and he will have mercy that he would not otherwise have if his own sin wouldn't have been confronted first. This is making sense to you guys. I think it's important, and I think when we look at this, we need to understand that Jesus' statement here is not one of saying, hey, never correct the speck in your brother's eye. He's just saying, make sure you can see what that speck is, and the only way you're going to see is to deal with the plank in your own eye first. So let's heed Jesus' words here. Stop, as he said earlier, you know, in the passage right before this about the blind following the blind. Stop following the blind and get out of the business of judging others. Let's leave that responsibility to the Lord. But let's start being useful to the Lord and leading people to restorative repentance and to the reconciliation with the Lord, which that brings. You know, my prayer, my heart that I want to be, and for you guys too, is that we might be instruments of God's grace and his mercy, not self-appointed instruments of judgment and condemnation. But for that to happen, it has to begin with an honest assessment of our own lives first. Like you're always told in the briefing before you take off that flight, if you've flown on a on an aircraft, right, what are you told? You get into those seats and they come out, you know, the attendants come out and they go through the demonstrations and they tell you if you're sitting with a small child or with someone that's unable to help themselves, if the oxygen fails and the masks fall down, what are you to do? You're to take it for yourself first so that you're able to help the person next to you. And that's no more true than it is with this when it comes to sins. First, we need help for ourselves. We need the Lord to deal with our sins. And then as he deals with our sins, we're better able to reach out and to minister to others. And I promise you this, when we're recognizing our own sins first, we will deal with the sins of other people in a very different way. That will be helpful. It will be restorative. It will bring healing to their lives and not just judgment and condemnation. Amen. So let's look on. He goes on in verse 43 and he says this, for a good tree does not bear bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. This statement is true, not just as our basis for judging the speck in the eyes of others looking for the bad fruit, right? You could take it from that. I'm looking for the bad fruit, 
right? That's the spec I'm looking for. But, but it's true in regard to the evaluation that we need to make of our own lives personally as we remove the plank. See, he's still in the same theme. This is not, we take these out of their context and we apply these as individual statements, but the truth, and they can, there is a usefulness to that as we'll see in a moment, but the truth is it's still in the context of talking about judgments. He's still dealing with this. Now keep in mind, he also has the Pharisees in mind who are standing around here too, who are judging people. And he's telling these folks, don't be like them. Don't be like them. By the way, judge the fruit of the way they're doing things and don't follow in their example. But at the same time, it's still connected what he's talking about, the fruit of our own lives, the planks that are that need to be removed. Look, the scripture indicates that fruit is something that reveals the spiritual state of our lives, of all our lives. At the heart of that statement is the idea that fruit, whether it be good or bad fruit, isn't something that we produce but it's an, it's an inevitable byproduct of who we are. And, and the fruit that gets produced in our life reflects the core of what we are. If we have been truly connected to and rooted to Jesus, our lives having been transformed by him, good fruit will be produced. Good fruit will be the natural byproduct of that relationship. On the other hand, if, if we're still in our fallen state as human beings, rooted in our sinfully fallen condition into which all of us are born into this world, then bad fruit will be the natural byproduct of our lives. And as Jesus says, every tree is known by its own fruit. He's saying that our actions and our way of thinking reveal the true state of our hearts. A good man, he says, out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. In fact, Jesus says that even our speech reveals the state of our heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You see? Now, again, we're quick to apply that idea to the lives of others. We're quick to look at other people and, and to determine where they are based on these things. And there's nothing wrong with this being a part of, of right judgments and evaluations that, that we're commanded to make in the scriptures. But at the same time, this is also the same standard that we're to apply to our own lives first. We who think we're righteous. We who think we're spiritual. We who think we're so much better than the other guy or gal. We need to look to the fruit of our own lives first and make that evaluation. And I promise you that when you do that, you'll be a whole lot more gracious in your application of it to the lives of others. Look, I, I lived a period of my life where I made my decision about where I was spiritually by comparison of others, you know, and that's a slippery slope. That's dangerous because the truth is, as human beings, nobody's going to measure up to where we are right? It's just our tendency. And so then we begin to elevate ourselves spiritually when in reality, the fruit may be showing something completely different if we were honest about it. So when we do this, we'll be a whole lot more gracious if we're honest in our assessment of the fruit of our own lives. See, most of us in applying this standard will walk away having been truly humbled as we realize how far short we fall in regard to the production of good fruit in our own lives. We don't need to worry about everybody else. When we suddenly realize how far short we fall, we'll be focused more on that. We'll quickly realize that we are in no position to start judging others for their lack of fruit. Now, in fact, we might even walk away feeling pretty much 
unsaved at times when we look at that, even though that might not be the reality of things. There's some important things you need to understand about fruit, especially as you look at it in your own lives. And I think it's important because there's grace involved in this. But even though good fruit is the measurement of true spirituality, there are several things to consider about fruit. Number one, fruit takes time to grow, right? Fruit takes time to grow. I don't care if you're looking at your life or the life of others. Fruit takes time to grow. When you plant a tree, a fruit tree, if you go out today and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant an apple tree, and you put it in there, I promise you it ain't going to produce apples overnight. It just is not going to do that. It's going to take time. It's going to take a period of time of growth and cultivation before the fruit begins to appear on the branches. That's a normal part of the growth process. And simply because fruit doesn't appear immediately, it does not mean that the process is not underway. It just takes time and it takes cultivation. So while we most certainly are looking for growth in our lives, in the lives of others, we can be patient and waiting on full development and, and just be busy doing what we can to ensure healthy growth so that fruit will eventually appear. I just shared with a fellow pastor this morning, we encourage each other on Sunday mornings, we write back and forth, but I encouraged him, I was going through a reading, and it's just dealing with just things for for those in ministry who are serving, particularly as pastors, and it was called the cate- basically the catechism pastor of the pastor. And it just asked these questions. If you've grown up with catechisms, I grew up a Lutheran originally uh, before I knew the Lord. doesn't mean you can't know the Lord and be a Lutheran. I'm just saying I did not know the Lord and I was a Lutheran. But I remember the catechism classes. We had a little book and we opened it up and th- there were some profound questions in there. It really dealt with the basics. There are a lot of things I believe today that I believe were instilled in me through that catechism class. You know, I didn't understand them because I had not given my life to the Lord. I hadn't really, I was still in control of my life. But when I did, I suddenly realized what a foundation I already had. The Lord was working through that. But in this, it was just talking about one of the hardest things of being a pastor is you speak and you share and you see people nod, but you know full well the vast majority of people will walk back out the doors and by tomorrow the message will be long gone and not much will seemingly be happening. And the point that the guy made was that he goes back to the book of James and he talks about the work. It's like planting and farming. You know, James talks about that in the book of James, but that it just takes time. It's like a farmer. You got to be patient. He said, even though you don't see it happening, the growth may very well be taking place. And I can tell you that now having pastored here for 20 years, I've almost 20 years, I've seen that. I've seen people who for five, six years, I could have looked at and said, well, they're not getting nothing out of this. There's no growth taking place. And then suddenly one day it was like they woke up and, and it's like transformational. And it's like, wow, it took a long time. But, but I've learned that the things that seem a long time to me are not necessarily long to the Lord. If he's got their hearts and he's working on them, it takes time. And the Lord knows that and he's working in them and he's getting the weeds out and he's pulling the rocks out of that rocky soil and giving the seed opportunity to take root and to truly grow. We don't always see that as human beings. God does. He knows. But we don't see that. And so we need to understand fruit takes time to grow. So we can't just pass a judgment, even on our own lives. Now, look, I'm certainly not saying that for you to look at your own lives, if you realize that there's bad fruit being produced, that you can just sit back and say, well, I'm just not there yet. No, be convicted. Be convicted. You know, it shouldn't be. As you realize, if you know there's bad fruit growing in your life or no fruit in a particular area, it's time to get before the Lord because that should not be. 
And, and now that's an opportunity for you to, to get in front of the Lord and say, what needs to correct in my life? What needs to change? Where am I not following what you've asked of me, Lord, that would bring this about? Where am I not yielding to your Holy Spirit's work in my life so that this can change? Where am I simply not saying no to the flesh? You know, and, and, and for that to begin to, that process to begin to occur. But at the same time, understand that you might look at others around you in Christianity and say, well, they're so much further ahead than I am. I'm just, I've heard people say that. I'm not so sure I'm saved when I look at other people. And I always bring them back to the question, well, tell me about your salvation. Tell me what you believe salvation is. Is it your outward works? What is it? No, I believe it's my belief in Jesus Christ. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. What does that mean to you? What does belief in Jesus Christ mean to you? It means that I believe he's my savior, that I can't do this on my own, that I can't cleanse my own sin. I believe his work on the cross for me was sufficient. I put my faith in him and trust in him and I'm depending on him. And then I look at him and say, then stop comparing yourself to someone else because the truth is they just may be a little further along in the fruit production process, but there's already fruit in your life just by the fact that you can confess that. There's already fruit there. So don't underestimate. But fruit takes time to grow. Second, fruit grows in seasons. Fruit grows in seasons. You know, if you drive through an orchard in the winter, and we got lots of them around here, but if you drive through the orchards in the wintertime, everything looks dead and barren, right? I mean, if you went by that standard, you'd start cutting down trees. But the fact is, we all know that they're not dead. They're just dormant, and they appear barren because they're in that dormant period of the year. But inside of that tree, in the inward parts of that tree that can't be seen, the sap, it's still building. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.